Hello and welcome to part two of Raw, the 90s rave podcast with MCMC. I'm your host, Tom Latcham. Hello. The first part of the interview went down an absolute storm, and I've got no doubt this will prove popular as we discuss MCMC's views on Happy Hardcore, his famous brief engagement to DJ Rat, and we also find out what Maurice is up to now. So let's talk uh, more about the your your sort of emceeing in hardcore, uh, Maurice, because you've you've done, you did happy hardcore. You're predominantly known for doing jungle and jungle maze, but you did a lot of happy hardcore, and a lot of people are interested in in that and how you straddled it. Uh, I mean, you've 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 mentioned that you felt better suited to breakbeat. Did you actually like happy hardcore? Uh, I did up to a point. Um where when the music started to change, I was more leaning towards more the breakbeat because um, it went more 4-4. Four, four. So when almost bordering on techno uh, to a lot of places. So um, I did enjoy it, but there would be at times where I didn't enjoy it so much. So what were the sort of sets that you didn't enjoy? And, 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 and why did you do them? Well, I did them because it, you know, I'm being paid to do a job. I got booked. I accepted the booking, and I'm going to do the best I can. I can't tell you particular sets, but when it's continuously uh, four four and then broken down by a lot of, you know, piano breaks and and it it, it just one set, two set, okay. But when it becomes a whole night, it just became a little bit much for me. Sometimes, so I started to actually turn down bookings that didn't have a second arena or didn't have the arena kind of mixed up. So I started to be a little bit more selective, but there was a time there as the transition was happening with the music that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling it as much. Right. Uh, I mean, a few people have said that their favourite set of all time of yours was Slipmat's 1995 set of Vibelite. Do you remember that set at all? I don't remember that set at all, but I do remember Vibelite. I remember Vibelite a lot. It was pretty much the furthest I would go for it. I was, um, you know, on, on a regular basis. I was a resident. Um, great promoters, loved the crowd down there, you know, but it was always a what two and a half three hour journey to get up there um so i remember having some great great nights there great great nights um just the crowd was always up for it always horns and whistles blowing the energy sweat box it was just it was great um but i don't really particularly remember that set uh because like I say, you, you know, did a lot. I did. I did. I did. I did a lot. Yeah, for real. Um, you eventually went down the drum and bass and jungle route. Was there anything that particularly sparked that decision? You know, was there a moment where you went, "I, I can't do hardcore anymore. It's just, it's just not for me." Um. Yeah, because the music once again, it, it became you would either be in a hardcore rave or a drum and bass gig right so it 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 wasn't like okay I could straddle both right now right and it was hard for me to switch on and off it got harder and harder as the music became harder and harder and more kind of separate from each other because coming from a break beat where you'd have slip mat and vibes in the same room and then groove rider would come on next 
then you'd have Google come on and then you'd have, you know, hype come on. You know, you could get, you, you could feel the sense and the crowd was moving and navigating through everything. But once it became really kind of segregated, like separated, um, I just, I just chose like drum and bass. And then also, you know, as we mentioned in part one, um, how navigating through the, the club scene as it was in London, uh, how it was becoming more jungle uh, oriented. Um, I wanted to kind of give myself more opportunities to be um, selected for those events. And I thought, well, the best way to do that is to stay on this course and show, you know, the promoters, the DJs, the decision makers that, yeah, he's, this is where he's at and he can do this and he's good at it. Did you feel sad about that split? Because I, you've mentioned how much you like the, the, the hardcore vibe, the, uh, the atmosphere that a hardcore rave creates. And, and that is true. There is, there is something about hardcore rave that is, I don't think drum and bass and jungle matches. Now they're different, right? Mm -hmm. So the, mm -hmm. I, I, my, my view is I like, a, I like a jungle rave. I like drum and bass. But the vibe is different. The vibe is mm -hmm. more intense. It's more like dark. It's more like moody. Whereas with a happy mm -hmm. hardcore rave, it's very much a, a a positive. Everyone's banging bang up for it. That sort of that stomping that goes on. Uh, did it make you sad that that you were not able? Uh, you didn't even like the music, really. But you were you had to leave that scene because you just didn't like the music. Um, I don't think sad is the word. Um, you know because I was always pretty much strategic about what I was doing. So not so much sad. Um, it, it hurt me pocket. I'll tell you that because, you know, I was doing um, like five or six, seven gigs on a weekend and it would go down to like one or two. So, you know, that's an adjustment I had to make. So it, I don't, I didn't really pay much to, you know, the emotions behind it. It was more strategic and business. And I just, this, you know, and, and drum and bass was just more me. It was just what yeah. I loved. MCs must feel quite powerless about that sort of thing. Whereas if you're a producer and, you know, if you're a DJ who produces, you're in control of what you make, right? So you're like, well, I like that sound. I'm going to make more of that sound. Whereas an MC, you don't have that power. You're like watching it change and sort of going, probably rave on rave. You're like, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. God, I don't, really vibe this at all did, did you feel powerless um yes to a degree yes to a degree um but once again as a businessman you're like you know you go to work people go to work they don't like their day right not everything at work they're gonna like right nothing's perfect in this world so it was more of a well this is what it is I, you know i, I I got to get on with it. You know, I, I can only control what I control and that's me being here right now and giving the crowd the best I can give and, and, you know, doing a good job and then collecting me, collecting me money. Business is business, right? It's business. It's business. <laughs> At the end of the day, it becomes a business. Do you, do you think that there was ever, ever any way that the scenes didn't have to split or was it that just an impossibility with the way that the music went? And because uh, I, I, one of the things that we, we talked about with Force and Styles recently is what the change might be post coronavirus. And, and they said we would really like it. We would hope that there would be more mixed arena events again, because in, in the UK, very much we're this is we like that. And this is that. And even and even you've got sub genres within 
jungle within drum and bass and jungle, you know, um, and, and people like what they like and they don't like anything else. Whereas on the continent, that that happened. That doesn't happen quite so much. Do you think there was any way that it didn't need to split, or that it was just inevitable and impossible to avoid? Inevitable. Uh, you you know, look. Um, once some, from my experience, and producers and DJs would be, I think, be able to bring more clarity to this. But from my perspective, is that whenever there's a genre created, um, it then finds. Um, groups within that genre that want to express themselves a certain way right a certain left field of that genre or the, or, or some that just want to drive it in another direction right and that was always going to happen i mean you know it, it happens with hip-hop right it's going to happen with music and i think that when you're in such an eclectic uh city such a you know as London, and I say London because that's where I'm from, but most of the cities in, in, in the UK, um, you've got a very diverse audience. Um, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of diversity. So what happens is, you know, while they embrace it, they're like, all right, how can we take this forward? Or this, is, I like this, but I want to add this to it. So I think it was just inevitable. Just like you said, drum and bass, turning to jungle, then you've got ragged jungle, then you've got liquid, Right. You've got all these offshoots, uh, which is which is evolution, which is just natural thing to happen. So I don't think there was any way uh, anyone was going to prevent that happening. And in terms of that jungle move into drum and bass and the various different offshoots uh, that it then created, how did you like the change away from from that jungle sound, from those chopped up beats into more rollers and uh, and and smoother, often smoother drum and bass? Did you like that? Was that a good move for you? Yeah, I loved it. I I, I loved uh, Liquid because you know I came from a soulful rare groove background, so it brought me back to that. That, um, but also like the reggae, because I was in sound systems and, and used to do house parties and MC there. Um, so it took me back to that. So I I loved it all. I loved the, the ragga jungle hard to the to the rollers, you know, to the to the heavier sounds. Um, I, I loved it all, all the offshoots that were coming on. The only, I guess, uh, dubstep was the only kind of kind of offshoot that came from that that I, I didn't vibe with at all. But all the other shoes of drum and bass and how I loved it. I, I would listen to Fabio and Bookham and just vibe with that and loved it, man. And, and yeah, I loved all the offshoots, to be honest. Uh, MC and also changed, and we've referenced it earlier on uh, about that change to the, to, the, to the double time. Did you ever try it? Ever try to match it? Ever try to go with it? Or were you, you were like, no, 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 it's fine. And, and in, is it, is it, did you think it's, it's important to have pluralism? In, in a scene? Uh, no, I, I absolutely tried it. I wanted to stay current, absolutely. And especially early on with Stevie, right? So um, uh, Stevie was always fast. Now, what I used to do as a double time is like, you know, you're here from the, the 93 set with Carl Cos. I'd be like, a bit of a beat 10 banging. Well, I would just roll certain syllables and just roll them, right? And keep it on time. But when I met Stevie, he was more lyrical. So I started to, definitely implement that into my set um maybe not so much and as hard because i didn't want to impersonate um what stevie was doing and shabba was doing so i would write lyrics 
and just make them time, you know, starting like, uh, you know, jumping up and down all around town to the sound of the underground, get down. So I just, I'd write what, how I normally would, but more syllables to kind of keep that pace and keep it up. But I was never, never uh, really, really good at, at doing what Stevie, Shabba and Skibber does. So you do what you, 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 you've got to find your niche and your groove and do what, what, what you're best at. Otherwise you're, you're going to be a, a, a bad version of yourself. Right. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly. No, you know, I didn't want to impersonate anybody or feel that, that, that's where, what people would say about me. So, um, no, yeah, you've got to keep true to yourself. You started Rush Hour uh, with MC Prince, DJ Destruction. It's around 97, 98, I think. For those who don't know what that involved, uh, can you explain? And also, Jonathan Watson asks, where are they now? Well, we know where you are. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny because Rush Hour, what happened was my my entourage just became bigger and bigger. So I would turn up like... I'd be going out and there'd be like two carloads of us. There'd be at least one car with five of, of us in there, right? So my entourage just got bigger and bigger and my entourage wouldn't, you know, refuse not to come backstage, right? And I was like, oh my God, this is like becoming a problem. They wanted to be on stage next to me. And, and I looked around and I said, listen, this is, this is getting nuts. So what I said is, I was like, hold on. I was like, Prince. Like Prince was always. I don't know what Prince can MC, right? He can MC. I'm like, uh, Raymond, like my driver. I go, you play sax, right? He's like, yeah. No, sorry, trumpet. I'm like, and now and again, he used to bring his trumpet out and he's going in between the slide, you know. And I'd love it and get a crowd going. Like, Come here, do it again, right? Then you'd have uh, one of my mates. He, I'm like. What do you do? It's like he it, it was such a raver, right? And he's like, Yeah, I'm like didgeridoo. I'm like, What? He had his freaking humongous didgeridoo. And I was like, All right, you got didgeridoo. And I'm like, You know what? We should, we should, I said, Well, I might as well create a bloody band with us, not and start making some money off of it. I says, You lot, you lot are coming on stage anyway, right? So that was it. We, we decided they were like, All right, all right. So we started creating Rush Hour and Prince, uh, Prince's girlfriend at the time was Sophie Stewart, uh, um, Patrick Stewart's daughter, right? So she was, uh, we all, every week we were together, one of my best friends, and she had uh, a clothing brand from New York called Triple Five Soul. So she would get all these clothes and we'd all dress up like I did with the come up crew with Stevie and Angie. It was kind of that again, let's create an act, let's bring some entertainment into the scene. And I brought them on stage and then we got a DJ. Uh, first it was DJ Monk, um, who were friends of theirs and he was great. He was always like a jungle star. And then there was a DJ called Destruction that I met. And he was like a hip hop DJ, scratching like crazy. So we said, no, you play hip hop. So then we put Monk and him next to each other, right? So we'd have like four turntables. So you'd have Monk playing, he'd be scratching, and we rehearse sets. I'd get a rehearsal room, we'd come in, we'd say, all right, me and Prince were the front men. Um, Raymond would be there with the trumpet and hyping up the crowd. That was, I would, he didn't really bring his didgeridoo much, but he was there. And we called ourselves um, the Rush Hour. And, I, and once again, I took it to Dave and Penny from uh, Hell Skelter. And they were always up for my ideas. And they said, all right, we'll give you a set. And we did it. And it went down wicked. It was like 
everyone was like, whoa. And I think at that time, um, the scene never really had entertainment. We had the DJs, you had the dancers on stage, you had the lights, you had all the components that made it good, but there was no real entertainment. Someone came to put on maybe a show. And that was the idea of what we were gonna do. We had a rehearse set. We knew who was gonna say what, we knew where we were gonna rewind, we knew how, when the DJ was gonna scratch and bring it in. And I think the crowd really responded to that. And yeah, we, we, we started getting bookings all over. Um, so that's how that came about. And then where are they now? Uh, well, I know Prince is, is still around. I know he's doing, selling very expensive jewelry uh, in Stratford, I think. <laughs> so he's still around. Sophie Stewart behind uh, Patrick, she's, she's doing well. She's still in, in London. Um, Raymond, the trumpet player, he works with um, some shapes from um, Dubai. So he like uh, makes, looks after all of their properties and drives them around in a Bentley and stuff. And uh, Larry, one of my best friends, um, that was always my driver uh, back from the early, early days. Um, not just my driver, my best mate. He um, he ended up, I, I don't know where he is right now. I know he had a few children and he was out in the country somewhere. Um, um, but yeah. Um, why, did you stop do, why did you stop doing it? Uh, because it, they, they just weren't serious about it and they got on my nerves. They wouldn't turn up for rehearsals and, I was just like, this is being up too much work. If you're not going to take it seriously, and I'm trying, and and I was getting them paid, right? I, I, I was saying promoters, well, it ain't going to cost you my normal fee. It's going to cost this, and I split it up, and I was actually coming out a bit short, right? So, and I was like, well, this ain't working out for me. If you don't ain't going to practice and take it somewhere, then forget it. So it just kind of died. So if there was a helter skelter comeback, how would you feel about getting the band back together? No, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> no. They 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 can just come along. Um, too much work, mate. I mean, if I was going to do a comeback, I'm going to be prepared for that, and I want to be solely focused on yeah on delivering MCMC and not not all the other stuff. Well, while I'm while I've while I'm on this, uh, it's a question I ask most of the people that we interview because there's been quite a lot of talk recently around Helter Skelter coming back and having whether it's like one last big hurrah or whether it's a sort of comeback you were many people uh, sort of accept the voice of Helter Skelter if Helter Skelter comes back surely you've got to come back yes I would actually I would love to do that that would be um something I would love to do I've uh, the only promoter that's really brought me back oh, since I've been here in America has been uh, Elevation um moon dance you know, moon as well da moon, yeah, yeah moon, sorry sorry yeah I go back to Elevation uh, EHM Productions, uh, Moondance. So I've done Moondance, really. I've only ever come back for Funky. Um, Why is that? From, uh, because of our relationship. Um, he's, he's like a brother to me. Um, we have such a great relationship that if he said, you know, do you want to come? I would look at the schedule, I'd talk, and then I would maybe bring one of my children with me. Um, and it, I took it as an opportunity to get back home and see, you know, because I've still got my grandchildren and my family and my kids in, in England. So it gave me that opportunity to come back. But also that, you know, while I was the voice of Health Scale, I was definitely the voice of Elevation um, and Moondance. 
you know um i did so much with with funky and moon dance like all of the commercials that you ever hear moon dance that was me kiss fm days we part of kiss fm i was doing a lot of commercials with them i do all the commercials so i'm very you know it, it's close to my heart and funky is one of my best friends but helter scout would be one that would aside from uh, the moon dancer moon dancer brings you back would be one of the things that would get you jumping yeah one of the very very few yeah would would be uh would be help skelter again because dave and penny were they were just great to me um and once again you know they made me a resident and you know it, it, i i love dave and penny i haven't spoken to them for many many years but to be able to show them the love back i would i would definitely come back for that do you think it would be a, a success I think it'd be a huge success, especially after being starved of entertainment for so long. Yeah, indeed. Um, someone, by the way, contacted me privately after I announced that you were doing the podcast because they know that I've got a big thing for like these clandestine scene meetings, and uh, yeah. that they have. And we've learned of two that existed in the hardcore uh, in the hardcore scene. But someone said that uh, around 1998, the bloke that owned the sanctuary, he thinks his name was Tony, and Dave Prattley had a meeting with loads of people in a hotel conference room. They sat on a table at the front with DJs and MCs and a few others who represented different trades in the raid scene. Uh, I'm sure Clarkie was one of the DJs. I'm pretty sure MCMC was involved. The meeting was quite tricky as no one had any idea what benefit there would be, but they agreed on the name, the Dance Music Association, and it was left there uh, that there will be further discussions to draft articles of association. <laughs> um, then nothing happened as far as I'm aware. Does that ring any bells? Not many, but I will tell you, I do remember, you know, that there was uh, a group of promoters and DJs and MCs that got together to try and bring some kind of organization because um, for whatever reason, um, I never ever thought it would really take off because promoters, while DJs and MCs might be competitive, that's nothing to promoters, right? Nothing compared to uh, different promoters. So I always saw in my back of my mind, there's no way these guys can agree to anything. But um, I do recall, I can't remember, I don't remember the details, but to be asked to be part of that meeting, I was definitely going to show up. And it goes back to what I was saying about business, right? Um, one, you know, this scene, behind the scene, it's a business. <laughs> so this was another uh, kind of example of, um, a scene becoming a business and how certain people wanted to organize or, or I, I don't want to say monopolize, but control and pretty much to their own benefit under the guise of everybody, for everybody, but really for their own benefit. And, you know, if I attend a meeting like that, I'm honored to be at the table, but I'm also, I'm going to let you business guys deal with it. Um, maybe I'll get a few more bookings out of it. Did you have one eye as well? Because if this was in 1998, did you have one eye on your potential departure anyway from the rave scene? No, no, I didn't. Um, my, every time the one eye from the rave scene, it was never, I never thought it was going to be connected to rave. Right? It wasn't, I was trying to navigate my way out by being a promoter or doing something within the scene. It was always, no, how do I 
come out of the scene, leave it completely and do something completely different. I want to ask you about some of the fun times that maybe don't fit into the obvious uh, sort of segments uh, around emceeing and your career. Um, you often emceed about drugs, ecstasy in particular, without drugs and in particular ecstasy and MDMA. What would the 90s rave scene have looked like? Wow. <laughs> uh, very different, I think. I mean... The whole thing about it was love, right? Hugging everybody and coming together and just having a great feeling. Um, you know, so I, I don't think it would have been the same at all. It was a huge part of um, of the scene and how it emerged and um, just how the you know the right from the raver standpoint, how they got to enjoy such loud music for so long. <laughs> <laughs> that did help I, you as i say you emceed uh, about drugs how much does an mc have to reflect or the best mcs how do the best mcs have to reflect how people are feeling what people are experiencing in that way um well i can't speak for any other mc right but for me it was all about connection with the crowd knowing your audience um which I, you know, which I learned from my early days of wanting to be a, being an actor. Um, so it's really that connection, know your audience and having a connection with them. And there was no doubt that, you know, the, the audience was, you know, majority were eat up. Do you, um, you, you mentioned in episode one about when your, your brother gave you uh, your first pill. Good, good brother. Well done. Um, a lot of, I've been really surprised by this actually doing this podcast series is that how few DJs did drugs until actually some of them did, but they didn't do it until like the mid nineties, the late nineties. And you're like, how, how did you do that? Um, do you think in your uh, experience, MCs are more likely than, than DJs, to do drugs perhaps because of their personalities um i think that you know djs have to be uh technically savvy right when's the beat coming in when's the drop what's mixing uh mcs are not they're free to be themselves right um they just got the mic and and they've just got to project what they want to project and entertain the way they want to entertain. I think it's, it would be much harder for a DJ to be off his nut than an MC. And uh, in terms of being off your nut, did you ever uh, dabble while you were working or did you make it a rule to uh, to do it after you finished? No, I would dabble. I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> listen, I, I would dabble. I wanted to be on the same level. Uh, look, that's not an excuse why. The only reason I would, but... A big reason was I want to feel what the crowd's feeling. I want to feel that energy. I want to feel what the music's doing with the drugs inside of you, right? So um, I used to dabble um, and I recollect on one occasion, only one occasion that I, I took something and I didn't know where I was or what the hell was going on. And um, I ended up 
mate, I ended up crawling underneath the stage to get to the back of the room. It was at a Roller Express. And I was like, what? And my mate, who was my driver at the time, he was the one who got it for me. And I said, and I was furious. I was like, because I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't function. I was like, what did you give me? What did you give me? And he's like, um, no, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. I'm going, no, nah, no, nah, this is... You know, I started panicking a bit, uh, but I came down from that and then ended up having a really good night. But yeah, man, I, I wanted to party as much as anybody else. And that was why I love my job so much as well. It's like, well, I'm not surprised, I, yeah. Mate, I would have a Jack Daniels in one hand, I'd have a slip in the other. You know, I'd be like, oh, man, this is great, mate. It's like, getting paid for this? Come on. <laughs> well, so anyone who's done drugs will know that whatever they do, they don't do it as well as they might do if they weren't on drugs so uh i mean apart from that one time did you surely taking drugs maybe mc is different maybe i'm wrong but surely taking drugs does make you just naturally a bit worse at what you're doing uh i don't know i mean mate I, i've listened, listened back to some recordings i was like whoa what was going on there you know what i'm saying <laughs> but once again it's it's no it, for me it was about being in that moment with the crowd and and i think that's part of popularity i had you know with, with with the crowd um is that they sense that i was there with them because you know you, you'll rarely see me on stage standing still right really um and that that could be because i was maybe you know on something and really feeling it or I was just really the music and the energy but I I always knew that I could pro project energy and good vibes without actually speaking just with my body language right you know go to one side of the crowd and just start being on one side of the stage and raving with them it's like and I um and and they love that right um and I, I will tell you that I never really saw, and the more I think about it, any MCs doing that, really jumping up and down and having a dance and, you know. Um, so that you know, was a- uh, You know who else yeah. does is uh, is Ribs. And okay. I, what he is my favorite hardcore MC. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason is, is because he dances. It's, 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 it's as embarrassing, as pathetic as that. I, I, I love seeing someone dance. Don't, doesn't matter who it is. I just love watching someone dance. And if the MC's dancing, you know, they're having a good time. And it's all about, you know, uh, good vibes. And I actually, <laughs> I actually didn't get laid once because of MC Ribs dancing. So there's a little story here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and there was this girl, uh, well, she's a woman, uh, there's a woman at this rave who I knew and I'd um, dated before and I saw her and we were getting on again and I was, I was almost like, I thought we probably were going to end up going home together and MC Ribs came on and I was not in a great state and I went, I, I've got to go and watch him dance. <laughs> and at that moment, her vagina froze over. <laughs> Uh, and and I, I I I heard it, and I was like, I heard it. I'm sorry, but I'm still going to go and watch him dance. And so I did, and I didn't get laid. And in fact, I met Ribs at an event a little while ago, about a year or two ago. And I said to him, I told him that story, and I said, um, 
So you basically owe me one shag. And uh, he thought, <laughs> took it to me that I was saying I wanted to have sex with him. And he was like, what? Oh, I'm not shagging you. And I was like, no, 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 you, you, no, no, you, you misunderstand. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. No, you don't owe me a shag in the literal sense. <laughs> but it's true. It's like, you know, you watch someone dancing. You can tell they're having a good time. And that comes through on the mic, right, as well. Absolutely. Once again, all about you're there for the crowd. You're not there for yourself. You're there for the DJ, you're there for the promoter, and you're there for the crowd. So emceeing is a selfless, um, real, I mean, to do it from my, from my standpoint is, is uh, a selfless act. You're giving everything of yourself to make everyone have a good time. And you've gone on to, and we'll, we'll come on later on to what you've done since you did quit emceeing, but you've gone on to have a, a, a respectable and successful career outside of the music industry. How have you managed to say, stay so grounded and so switched on and professional when you've been involved in such a dodgy, druggy environment? Um, well, look, the bottom line is, you know, whether you're an MC or a DJ or a promoter, it's business, right? Yeah, you got to think like a businessman. Um, you know, before I had an agent, I was doing my own bookings, my own flights, uh, my own calendar. You've got to be on time. Uh, you got you got to present yourself well. You want repeat business. These are basic business principles, right? So um, it never really occurred to me. Now, what I did learn as I started to enter into more of a corporate, the corporate world was how my communication skills, because MCN is communicating, right? How I had such awesome communication skills. And that's really, I would say the single biggest thing that carried me through uh, from job to job was um being able to just connect with my audience so if my audience is um a room full of business people then i'm gonna be respectful in that way and i'm gonna portray myself in that way but i'm connecting but also is knowing your audience talk you know knowing your audience so if i go to a hardcore rave it's a different audience than when i go to a jungle rave I'm on a, a, a huge arena, it's different to being in a, a club with 200 people. So I learned as well, like the skills that I've learned that carried me through are knowing your audience as well and uh, being able to connect and con uh, communicate. So obviously a learning curve in everything you do, but taking those principles into that have served me, served me very well. Um, also, you must have been because you were, I, I can imagine being an MC, you're a good looking guy. Um, there must have been a lot of women interested in you at the time. Did you ever, uh, did you ever get laid through work is basically the, the, the question that I'm going to ask. <laughs> All the time, mate. Well All done. Excellent. That's the answer that we were looking for. <laughs> All the time, mate. Honestly. Yeah. All the time. It's a perk, perk of the job. It is a bug of the job. Well, and and also you got in, you got engaged through your work as well. Anyone? We, look, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna tackle this. Uh, people have said, <laughs> "I bet he doesn't." I bet he doesn't. Well, you're wrong. 
I you you bet wrong. I am going to. Um, you famously got engaged to DJ Rap. Um, you in depth. In fact, not only uh, did you get engaged to DJ Rap, you did so on stage, which uh, I'm not sure might have been the smartest move. Maybe in retrospect. Nah. Yeah, you know, look. Um, when I met Rap, I was actually in a relationship. Okay. I was in a. Um, I've been in a relationship for about four years, and. There was nothing wrong with the relationship, to be honest with you. And when I met Rap and we actually got together, um, it just turned me right around, right? Um, she's beautiful, right? She's talented. She's famous in our scene, legend, right? And I was like, wow, you know, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, yes, please, right? So we got together and, you know, I I left my other girlfriend and we were, me and Rap were doing events together and it was just such a beautiful thing and, and being so entrenched in the scene and my, this being my life, it was, you know, I, I how I guess, you know, you hear about celebrities get together, right? Because you get to understand each other, you get to know each other's, schedules you know the pressures you know um you just have this connection and me and rap definitely had that connection so um how how we got engaged was i was just head over heels with her and i didn't want to let her go and uh i was speaking to funky about it from elevation and i was like mate you know like he goes well you could propose you're like what you're gonna propose kind of thing and i was like Man, I, I might, you know, because I don't want to, I wanted to know I'm real serious. I love her, you know, and, and, and it was kind of like a romance and, and it was a romance for the scene as well. And people really latched onto it wherever we went, they could see us afterwards, hugging each other. Because, uh, you know, we were very emotional to each other. You, you know, there are people that have relationships in the scene, uh, DJs, whether they bring you know, their girlfriends or whatever, but they're not always that close because, you know, maybe they're maintaining some professionalism. I didn't care. You know, I'd kiss her up and grab her wherever. I just, I loved her to death. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to engage. He goes, well, do you want to do it like at elevation? And I was like, what? And I was like, what? And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what? The Ravers are part of our, our, our you know, how 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 this has come about i'd love to share that with them i would love to share that with them so me and funky you know kind of strategized about it and yeah mate we we went out and um and the moment came and i got down on one knee and I, you know i didn't care if the world watched me or what anyone thought i loved her i wanted to show i loved her and i wanted to share that with the scene and that's kind of how that came about Nice. And uh, can I ask, would you want drugs at the time? No, no. No? Wow. No, 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 no. Didn't even no, need no, them? No. no, I didn't need them. Didn't need them. You know, I, I always, I, I smoke weed all day, every day. I used to. Um, so I'd be smoking some weed or have a drink. But as far as that night, no, 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 no. I wanted my clarity about me and yeah, I didn't want her to think it was We something. We interviewed her recently and she's got nothing but 
kind words to say about you, by the way. She thinks you're great. And um, and I, th- I understand that you, you, you still see each other, you know, when she's in L.A. from time to time and that sort of thing. So there's she, she wanted me. She wanted me to pass this on. Actually, she did want to say, uh, Maurice, I think you're absolutely fantastic. You're a great guy. And um, and thanks for the memories. But but I will say perhaps not. She didn't say I'm paraphrasing. She did say perhaps not that one. Um, and in the book, there's, she talks about a moment of panic that came over her sort of like, I can't really say no here. What do I do? Do I say no and disappoint all the ravers? Or do I say no? Or, or, or do I say yes, even though I think this is probably not the right thing to do? Anyway, she said yes. Um, but she said she can't remember it that well, to be honest. But she said, I've got a funny feeling that the relationship might have ended after that. Is that right? Yeah, it did. It did. It did. Uh, you know, look, on in retrospect um, and where I was in my life at that time and everything else. And, and what, what I do want to share with with the listeners is that when success comes and you're in the height of it and you're going, you're kind of out of touch with reality. Right. You're in your bubble. And I was definitely in my bubble at that time. I mean, not only was I doing really well and, you know, life's great and I'm, I'm MCMC and I'm getting gigs and I'm doing what I want in life. I'm getting paid well. I've now got the girl of my dreams. I've got the number one woman on the scene, right? It's like, so at that time, I probably wasn't at my wisest, right? and wasn't as aware of everybody else and everything else around me. Um, And in retrospect, you know, I look back and I think, yeah, probably not the right thing. We, I do remember we came back after there was, you know, there was no animosity between it and something like that, but we had, we ended up having a bit of an argument. And um, I was like, look, and I'll always remember because I had to go and see my daughter, right? Go and get my daughter. And I'm like, I'm going to pick up my daughter, Jade, right? And we had an argument. She threw the ring at me or something like that, right? And I was like, I was like, oi, I goes, I goes, you better fucking pick that up. And I ain't picking it up. We're in a big argument. I says, listen, you, you got one chance. You go pick that up. Otherwise, that's it. You're telling me you're throwing this away. She didn't pick it up. So I picked up the ring and walked out, and then we we never we split from there. Basically, we never got back together. Um, but what I did, you know, wh- when I walked away and I went and saw my daughter, it kind of brought me back out of my bubble. Like, you know, you've got a daughter, you've got this. You know, you had a great relationship, you ended it. You're trying to marry, you know, rap. You're doing it on stage. It's like what are you doing, son? It's like, you know, so I kind of pulled back and in, in retrospect, but I will tell you, I mean, I've, I've been with a few women in my life, right? And rap is right up there. I mean, I have nothing but love in my heart for her. Um, you know, I meant everything by wanting to marry her and be with her. It just wasn't meant to be, but she is just a beautiful person. I mean, gorgeous, successful, and and likewise, you know, I have nothing but good feelings and wish her all the best. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's good to get to a place where you can both acknowledge that with each other. So it makes my heart full to, to hear what she said about me.
We hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw. But now's where we ask you, inevitably, for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free, taking no wages out of this project to create this podcast. And it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that, thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great news. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, we've got big, big plans for the future, but we aren't going to be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're going to need to keep on funding Raw. And that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favourite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and if you're not in a position to donate because we know it's a tough time for everybody you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on youtube facebook instagram and twitter you just need to search for raw the 90s rave podcast go and do that now please massive love and respect to each and every one of so here you go. Now is the bit, Maurice, where we uh, talk about your departure from the rave scene and how it all happened, how it came to pass, and what you've been doing for the last 20 years without being on stage emceeing to thousands of people. Um, you, of course, now live in L.A. Uh, you moved mm-hmm. to the U.S. in 1999. Why did you do that? So at that time, um, I was... Um, uh, doing a lot of gigs, pretty much all my gigs with Adam F., and Jay Magic. So um, we would be touring the US quite a lot. And um, when I came to the US, um, I would do, well, every time I would come into LA, there's uh, the longest running drum and bass night in LA is called Respect. And I, I, I got on really well with those guys and they would all, they would have me on. So <clears throat> I was at uh, Respect one time I was on tour in the US, I was uh, at Respect, and um, I, met, I met a young lady. Um, we, we kind of, um, I was leaving back for the UK a couple of days after I met her, and she didn't call me back. I said, maybe she's not interested or whatever. And I gave her a call on my last chance, uh, the last day before I was leaving, I said, look, I don't know. I met you, I thought we could have a drink or something. I'd love to see you. I'm leaving for the UK tomorrow. You know, if not, no worries. Uh, but I just thought I'd reach out. She actually called me uh, back and we set up a date. So we went out that night. She took me out and for a night that no woman's ever done for me. She took me to a really nice restaurant, fed me, wanted to pay the bill. I was like, no, no, no. She's like, no, absolutely not. And showed, and, and we had a great night. And, uh, I left, and this was a this was a period in my life, uh, another kind of a low point, really, as it were. I just separated from. I was actually just split, but not officially split from my uh, first wife, who I had my son Cain with, and things were bad. Uh, it, it really ended badly, um, and I was very lonely. I was actually in Buckinghamshire because that's where we were living. And I went and got myself a bedsit just so I could be close to my son. And I was in a, in a, in a room on my own, all of a sudden, MCMC, like I've lost everything I've got. 
not with my kid. And I was just, I was a bit lost. So I wasn't really looking for anything, but I found it in, in um, Alison, her name is Alison. So we started talking, I came back to the UK and we started talking and talking. And I was like, I'm coming back out. I'd come back out, we'd have another great time. Then I'd leave again. I was like, wow, she's so nice. She's so nice. So different to my ex-wife. So different, right? And I was like, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. She's going to turn out to be a right nightmare. So I would even come out to LA and, and spy on her where she would work. She worked at a restaurant and see, like, is she up for it? Like, is she is she with other geezers? What's going on? And then, but no, I mean, so basically we dated long distance for about a year and a half. And then she came to the UK and met my family and everyone fell in love with her. My kids, everything. And I was in love at that time. So she came back and it just got to the point where I wasn't happy in England anymore. Um, and I said, you know, I'm thinking maybe we should be together. I'm like, this is getting too hard for me to be apart. So we decided I was gonna move out and I said, we'll try it. So I moved out. We dated for a year long distance. Um, uh, sorry, we, I, I was here I dated for after a year. Uh, I was like, look, I, I can't be without you, you know? I love you and she was the same. I said, when we got married. So that's what brought me to the US is love. Was your unhappiness <clears throat> solely to do with your, uh, what was going on with your ex-wife and your uh, son or was it anything to, at all to do with the music to do with the music too in in regards to i wasn't getting i was i was getting good bookings with adam f and j magic they were becoming more fewer and far between and it was kind of reliant on them i wasn't getting booked really on my own as an mc anymore i'd invested everything into adam and and bringing forward his promoting his album on live and then with jamie so we got booked as a either a trio or with jamie or with adam so i would be their mc but it was also that you know well i'm not really getting booked now in london it really got to that point um i'm, I'm on an exit strategy i don't know what it is and i'm not happy in my life i'm not happy here really the only thing that's making me happy is in america right so i ran towards where, what was making me happy and did, did i've been also, here ever since did you also think that the u.s drama bass scene had lots of growth in it as well and you might like to be a part of that yeah it's, it's funny you should say that because before when i was contemplating the decision i had an american agent that would handle all my american bookings and i remember um we were at the hospitals, uh, hospitals, you know, the, 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 the label hospital. Um, they were doing a live show and it was a really nice affair. I think in Brixton Academy, I think it was, and it was a sit down dinner kind of thing where uh, they were performing live. And I was at the table with my agent and I said, look, I think they're moving to the US. Um, what do you think? And he was like, man, that would be dope for you. Really good because all the promoters in the US wouldn't have to pay an international flight. So you'd make more money and you'd get more bookings. So I was like, all right then. Well, I can move out there with, with my savings, right? And make a living. Well, as soon as I got here, that didn't happen. So 
my money started running out quickly. Um, and I had to kind of think, you know, shit, what am I going to do? So that takes me on to what I started doing here. Um, the first thing that I did was I looked around and I made an assessment of the scene in LA, the John Bass scene. While there were some good parties, most of them were held in like a, a little bar or a restaurant where they'd move the tables to the side, they'd put up some speakers and, you know, and, and they would have it there. And I was like, that's not how we do it in England. You know, we, we do it in the Hippotron, we do it at Scala, we do it, the, we're doing it in the biggest clubs, right? Um, why is that not happening in here? And somebody said to me, because you can't get in those venues. So I was like, well, okay. So I thought about it for a while. And another thing that I've noticed here when I was in, in the US is that it's very elitist, right? The, the top promoters uh, would only book certain DJs, even if they had a side route. So there were a lot of DJs that weren't getting no love. They had all of the passion, all, all of the skills, right? But not given an opportunity. So I knew that when I, if I was going to do anything, and I, I said to myself, well, I've been in raves long enough to know what a good rave is, a good party, what makes it. I'm on stage actually doing the thing and entertaining and seeing everything happen. I said, I think I'll do make a good promoter. So I said, I said, I'm going to set up a promotion company. Now I knew that the elite promoters, it was very competitive here, very competitive to the point where if you book, if you book this DJ, um, you know, you're not allowed to book that. You're not allowed to book that DJ, right? It was like that. It was like they had deals with agents, so you could you couldn't book Andy, you couldn't book Hyatt because they would only go to one promoter because of their agent. So I realized it was going to become very competitive, and I was now going to be instead of being someone they would book, would be their competitor. So what I did was my strategy was to get all of those DJs that didn't get no love and give them all the love. I gave them all the love, and they looked up to me because I had the name. Right. And I came from the scene and they knew me. So what I did was I started doing small clubs and I'd have it with totally unknown DJs. And we started getting like, you know, in a little bar or something, we started getting like 400, like people can't even get in. And all of a sudden there was a name and everybody started coming to me. Can you give me a break? And I'll say, yeah, you stand out there and give out these flyers. You go over here and deliver these tickets. You go and I had a freaking army. It was like, so we created this uh, company called Grapevines with a Z, Grapevines with a Z on the end, a Z, sorry. Z, I've been in America too long, a Z, right? And um, yeah, we, we started doing- You've also got, for anyone who's listening, by the way, you've also got incredibly white teeth. So uh, you were <laughs> very well, LA. Hollywood teeth. Yeah, well, exactly, Hollywood teeth, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, carry on, man. Yeah. So I, um, I ended up, um, saying, okay, I want to take this to the next level. This is really working. So I'll go to uh, really like the top clubs in LA. So Henry Fonda Theatre, the key club, that was Madonna's club. Um, you know, just really top notch clubs where drum and bass had never been. And I'll speak to the promotion manager and they'll be like, well, we're booked up and everything. I goes, well, what's your weakest night? They say Sunday. I said, oh, I'll take Sunday then. They're like, whoa, no one does stuff on Sunday. I'm like, what, you know, and I, the way I would work, it was a bar guarantee. And what happened was I ended up meeting the son of an owner of a club. 
which was the Century Club. The Century Club is mentioned in Dr. one of Dr. Dre's songs. So it is an iconic club in LA. Never had drum and bass. And the owner's son, we became friends. And he um, and we created, he, he started developing grapevines with me. And we had an event at his where we had five arenas of just drum and bass. Never happened in, in America, let alone uh, LA. And we called, yeah, and so we had five arenas of drum and bass. Um, and on a Sunday night, and blew the doors off the place, right? So from there, I kind of went from one club to another iconic. I said, I've done this, this is what I did. Give me your weakest night. Give me a bar guarantee. Made it, smashed it, kept smashing it, and just build up this, this huge following, changed the scene here, brought a lot of DJs and MCs through, and it was beautiful. And then I had one bad event where people didn't turn up. I actually partnered with the House of Blues. I mean, that's how good we got. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the House of Blues, the promote there. Oh, they're a huge promotion company out here in, you know, not as big as Live Nation, but they were one of the biggest. And they came to me and said, we've heard about you. We want to partner and do an event with you. I was like, sure. So uh, I did an event and I didn't get the numbers on the door. And at this time, my wife was uh, pregnant um, and she was like, you know, how are we going to pay the bills and everything else? So I started looking around and I was like, shit, you're right. Um, and one of the clubs that I did an event at approached me and said, listen, you did such a good job. We want to offer you a position as a promotions manager for our club. And that club is the Avalon. The Avalon used to be the, the palace. And that is the first place that the Beatles played when they came to America, uh, to L.A., so, you know, these real iconic, it's right across, across the street from the Capitol Records building, if you've ever seen the record that looks like uh, with a needle on top. So here I am now, I've got a job as promotions manager. So this was my, the first, start of my first real job. Um, so I did that, but it got a bit nuts. I was dealing with Hollywood uh, club owners, which when they're just, nuts right and then i'm dealing with I'm more nuts than the promoters over here mate they're the owners of clubs so they they yeah they're just and it's hollywood mate it's honestly so and I, I just found it hard to navigate but also i was working days and nights so in the daytime i'd be doing negotiations i'd be doing the south and everything and at nighttime i'd be running the event so i was working like 18 hour days and and my wife's like i was like i don't know how i can handle this so what happened was and this is how I got into real estate because everyone says, how did you get into real estate? Right. Well, this is how I got into real estate. My wife's father um, approached me and he said, listen, I know you're not liking what you're doing. I've watched you. I think you're great. He goes, I think you could do very well at commercial real estate. So commercial real estate, not selling houses, right? Selling land for developers to build shopping centers and malls and industrial estate zones. Pretty much sending a blank piece of land. And I was like, Are you got to be kidding me. I don't know the first thing about it. So he said, I said, look, but you know what? I never want to close doors. So why don't I come and check it out in the office for a couple of weeks and then I'll give you my answer. So I went and observed and I was like, I could do this. So I went off and got my license. 
So I get my license uh, and I'm doing real estate. And then what happens? The recession of 2008 hits. For me, it was the best thing to happen because all of these established brokers um, were falling by the wayside and I was hungry. So I started getting my own clients. I started doing deals in the recession. It was like, how are you doing that? I know how to do that. We ain't got time. That's another podcast, right? And um, while I'm doing this, now, I'm doing a lot of networking with city officials, the planning, all of these people's like the mayor, I got to know the mayor, you know, I turn up in the middle of, you know, some desert town in, 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 in America, and they're like, and I've got this accent, I look like this, they're like, who is this dude? But I'm giving it the charm, the, you know, the business and the connection. And I started making some real good connections. And what I noticed was, though, that what, what put the end to doing real estate for me, I did it for about two years. What put the end was I did a huge deal, a biggest deal in the office and the commission was crap because I had to split it. And I said, I can't live like this. So I, I, in all of my networking, I became part of a business advisory council and I, and it was a long way away. And I let these people in this business advisory council look, go, look, I can't, can't do this anymore. I'm looking for a new career. Put the phone down the phone rang and it was a lady that i'd been networking from like the equivalent of a job center out there she said i hear you're looking for a new career i said yeah she said well i'm looking for a business services representative so basically she hired me now i'm working to their equivalent of a, a job center and what i'm doing is going out knocking on businesses doors saying what uh, job openings do you have and then finding out job seekers those jobs i'm working for a non-profit organization right. called goodwill um in america and yeah that's and so i totally changed career paths um and what happened was I transitioned from that. One of my clients while doing that uh, was a staffing agency, you know, temporary staffing, right? Uh, the staffing agency said, uh, said uh, they were my client and they said, we would like to have you. We would like to hire you. And I was getting sick of the nonprofit arena. Um, so many loopholes you have to, you know, you have to be very politically correct. And it wasn't really me, you know, with my big mouth and letting you know how I feel and everything I else. You've, you've right? improved on that. Obviously not. I, I was, but like I told you, it's a work in progress, <laughs> mate. It's a work in progress, right? So I said, yeah, I'd rather go in a for-profit arena. So I did that. And I ended up being a market manager, running my own branch, having about anywhere up to 400 employees under my responsibility 2025 clients i did that for seven years wow and uh i've just transitioned out of that now um and yeah kind of navigated out of that and what i'm doing now is i'm working with damien marley uh from the marley family bob marley's son i'm running uh i'm program director for jamrock radio which is a live radio stream which is being created because uh the Jamrock uh, brand usually has a cruise every year, but because of COVID, there's no cruise. So to keep the audience engaged and keep the brand going, they've created this radio stream. So now I direct uh, Jamrock Radio, putting in um, DJs, uh, reggae DJs from uh, across the globe. Come in, 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 come in,
Wow. How do you enjoy that? I, I love it. You know, I'm on the back end, but it suits my personality because um, it's funny because I come full back circle with the music. So I connect very well with them. I have uh, a reggae background in when I in England uh, from being a you know in in the sound, um, and um, so it's great because I can sing along and tunes they know and I engage with them and I've been told I'm doing a great job and so that's where I'm at now and uh, I, I enjoy it very much. And and how is uh, life as a married man in Hollywood? Well. You know, my wife is from the East Coast originally, so she's got that New York grit about her, right? She's from New York originally. So she came over when she was like 14. So she still has that in her. So she's not really LA, um, but she's my best friend and we get on famously. We've got three great children and I've got to be honest with you, life here is great. Uh, uh -huh. Do you think that you'll stay there? Do you, do, you, do you see yourself moving ever moving back home to the UK? Well, it's, it's funny you say that because I had um, made the decision a couple of years ago that I wanted to relocate um, with my family. I started seeing my children growing up in Hollywood, being around other Hollywood kids. You know, um, my kids go to a public school, but there are some uh, kids who are very famous people there or well-to-do people there. And... You know, I just started to see a change in them. And I was like, I want to give them a different worldly view, but I didn't want to go back to England, right? Uh, with the Brexit, everything that was happening there, I was just like, I didn't want to go step into that. So I was going to move to Spain. So I went out to Spain. I actually got a job and I got a job offer for Spain. And we had all of our plans and our bags packed and our house ready to rent here um, on April the 6th and COVID hit. Um, so Spain is no longer. Huh. So um, you've got this new job with uh, Jamrock Radio, um, which did tie. I don't know. Radio, it, it, it doesn't necessarily tie you to anywhere necessarily. You could move where you wanted. But do you, do you think that, well, is, is that move back to Europe off now or on hold for a bit? Or um, Well, I actually did the job for about three months, but they wanted me to relocate after that three months. That was the deal when I took it on. Uh, but with everything going on, I couldn't. So they've kind of stuck a pin in it. Um, so I'm not looking that far into the future during COVID. Um, you know, I'm just looking at, um, daily, weekly and monthly kind of goals, um, because this thing is moving and changing so rapidly. I'm not making real long-term decisions right now. But one day it could be MCMC Senore. No. Oh, okay. No, okay. No, 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 All right. No, no. Hola. Uh, hola. I, might, I might edit that bit out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and when you do come back to the uh, to the UK um, to MC, and it's very rare, but I did see you at the uh, Moon Dance Festival a couple of years ago. Do you still enjoy it? Do you still get? Do you still get that love from the fans? Yeah, I do. In fact, uh, it's funny because the last time I was there and I did that set, I got really nervous. I got so bloody nervous. I was on with Nikki, and me and Nikki were seen on the side of the stage. And he was like, You all right, mate? And I was like, Why? Why? He goes, Mate, I've never seen you like this. And I've done many sets with Nikki. And he's like, I've never seen you like this. I goes, Nikki, to be honest with you, I'm fucking shitting it, mate. He's like, 
goes, I can see, I can see. He goes, oh, oh. And I was like, oh, he goes, that's good, mate. You see that there? You see that there? That's that's natural, that is. That's natural buzz. That is lovely to see that. No one don't get that no more, Maurice. That's all dead. No one don't get that no more. I love it. He goes, good, good. Feel it. In back, get it. That's great. And Nikki kind of got me back to that. It's okay to have nerves, right? You're on the brink of something. And I went out and I gave it my all. I mean, man, I was tired, but I was jumping up and down, jumping off the stage monitors and giving it all my all. And I could definitely see that people still responded to that, you know, because like I say, I've never been, I don't think I've ever been the best lyrical MC by a, by a long shot, but I've always tried to be the entertainer. And when I saw the sets after me, and some of the long-standing ones, they were so good on the mic. I was like, why are they standing still? Why are they standing in one spot? You know, that was always my thing, but you know, that's, that's their thing and they do a great job, but it, it just kind of brought it home to me about what, what makes me me and what, what I've done throughout my career. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it uh, and uh, I think the crowd enjoyed it. Do you, uh, do you still practice? Uh, Andrew Smith says, does the MC in the shower, for instance? <laughs> No, I don't. I get in and out of the shower as quick as I can. I've got too busy. <laughs> do you do you to practice at all to, to avoid being rusty, or is it just come no, natural? No, no. Now, if I had a book in, I would, right? right. I'd start writing. I'd start okay. doing, you know, if I was coming back for help scale, I'd be starting writing some help scale stuff. And, um, and what I do when I write is I would write some basic flows, like little scats, and the rest of it would be uh, just you know, on the spot, you know, freestyling, but I'd have some stuff to go back to and I create melodies. So, um, you know, I'd go back to the melody to get, have a place of comfort from where I'm seeing and then wait for the opportunity to come in with something else. And um, do you think that your legend and popularity, and, and as I've told you a few times, um, the, the, the announcement that we were getting you was the, one of the, it banged, man. It was like one of the biggest uh, that we've had in terms of reaction and delight and questions and all that sort of stuff. Do you think that your legend and popularity has grown because you quit and left? Uh, possibly. I don't know. I think uh, maybe you have to ask the audience. That might be a question to put out there, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I definitely feel that, you know, you don't miss something if it's in front of you, right? <laughs> you, 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 how are you going to miss it? You're going to go and listen to it. You're going to pay a ticket and you're going to go and get, you know, seek it out. So if you can't get something, you know, it becomes more valuable, I guess. Um, so I can see it from that standpoint. But I don't know, you know, and, and, and to be very honest with you, you know, I get shocked a lot of times when um, you bring up or someone brings up or I, 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 I'm, I'm not I'm not on social media. I'm really not. Um, I don't have an Instagram. I, you know, I don't tweet. I don't have a tweet a Twitter account. Um, so when I do look, I get, you know, I, I kind of sit back and pause and I think, bloody hell, really? You know, that was something else. You know, I, I I relive it from my experience and what I had. But when I hear, you know, the the real nice stuff people say. Um, Sometimes I'm shocked myself because I'm certainly not sitting here thinking, yeah, that's me. I've done that. You know, yeah, well, what do you expect? I, that's just not me. I'm so focused on where I am right now, what I've got to do and the future that the past doesn't really come back into it. 
And to dial it back before we uh, end this interview, uh, we've uh, had a message actually from one of your former colleagues. It's a guy called Beatmaster P, uh, who says he's called Paul. He was a stage manager for Elevation, Desire, Reincarnation, WDO. Okay. Uh, and he says, hello, Maurice. Uh, when was the best era for you? Is it 91, 92, 93, et cetera? <sighs> so hard to say. Um, I would say... 90 around 90 91 92 kind of really more emerging on the scene coming out of the pneumatic era and establishing myself as an artist um you know coming up with my name you know it was like th those days there i look back as really great i i got it i mean let me make it clear i enjoyed all of it even the past where I was struggling to kind of keep my identity as the scene was evolving and changing, but that's what builds you as a character star, you know? Um, and, you know, so yeah, that, that part in the nineties, yeah. Uh, the, the early part for me. And then I would say, you know, around 90, what, 95, 96, where, where we started getting a bit more of the drum and bass coming through, um, so yeah, I would I would say around those those, those times, Paul. Okay, uh, and uh, who would you? This is the final question we ask everybody. Who would you like to hear us interview in the future if you could choose anyone? Now, I mean, we've 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 done we're moving through the names now, but there's still plenty to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> um, from a DJ standpoint, I think uh, Nikki Black Market. Nikki Black Market uh, for sure. You know having the record shop where everyone used to come that would be a really interesting and yeah, he just come and himself been in the scene for so long and also giving you another insight into stevie because they him and stevie became you know really really tight and did all their gigs together um and from an mc standpoint uh gq yeah we'd love to get gq and also fearless so we can say what the fuck are you talking about mate yeah, I, I, listen, let me just put it out there on the record, man. Fearless, what's happening, brother? And hope all is good, bro. If I did something, I'm sorry, bro. Well, that's nice. And, and, and again, ending on a positive point. Um, mate, thank you for your time. I've had an absolutely fantastic, uh, it's been a thoroughly enjoyable uh, interview, not only because you're really fascinating and great, but you are one of my favourite MCs of all time, even though I never saw you perform. I uh, wasn't old enough. I know that that probably makes you feel old, but uh, it's true. Uh, and uh, and so, and so I'm sure that I speak for all of our audience, given how popular the announcement was, just to say thank you, and, we, and we're glad you're doing well, mate. Uh, well, thank you very much, and I appreciate it. It's been many, many years um, since I've done an interview, and I've really enjoyed reliving it and just looking back at things, and I hope everybody gets to enjoy this, and uh, yeah, man, uh, thank you for the opportunity to share my experience and my life with you. That's all right. We'll see you at Skelter, mate. Yes, I hope so. Fingers crossed, buddy. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Well, we hope you've enjoyed the latest episodes of Raw. We've certainly enjoyed making it and bringing it to you. And we want to make more. 
Uh, but to do so, we are going to need some of your help, I'm afraid. Uh, we are just normal people with normal jobs. This is a hobby and not a very well-paid one at that. In fact, it's not paid at all. Uh, we've invested quite a bit of our money to keep this, uh, keep this show going, uh, but we could really use some of your help. Uh, as well any donation big or small we know it's a difficult time for you all out there it's a difficult time for all of us uh, but any donation you can give whatever size will help us go towards improving our kit it will help us get on the road pay expenses to go and interview some of your 90s rave favorites uh, and also just uh, keep bringing you some more banging 90s rave content if you do feel able to help that'd be great if you don't we do understand uh, but if you can head over to gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcasts that address i'll repeat just one more time gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast uh, and if you can't give any money or you want to join our community why don't you head over to twitter why don't you head over to instagram why don't you head over to youtube and why don't you head over to facebook search raw the 90s rave podcast like us subscribe to us do all that get involved so now it's time for a big shout out to some of our most generous donators and helpers. Uh, a big shout out to Chad O'Carroll, who knew that the 90s rave scene was big in North Korea. Oi, oi to you, mate. Uh, a big shout as well to Wayne Clark, who uh, gave some money via our GoFundMe.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast URL. Uh, he knows how in, uh, difficult it is to keep funding all this kit, and he's given us a fantastic donation. Thank you very much, Wayne. Big ups to you. And Malcolm Payne, ongoing funder from the US of A. We're glad you're enjoying it mate keep listening there's loads more to come 